I got it. You want me to go? This whole com- I think she sees my vision. Uh, she see over here. I see it. I'm ready. Up a master plan. Yo, I'm out here, here producing. Yeah. Like I'm out oh, here yeah. producing, yeah. producing. Okay, okay. How was I gonna start this? With a song is great too. That's yeah, oh, I like that. I'm gonna my cut singing that in. is like superb. Julian's never made fun of it. <laughs> She's gonna be mad when I put this at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And you play football like that's a I, that's another topic like that that's such a <laughs> Sophia and I mean this I mean, I mean this so lovingly it, she I, is a I, weirdo I played <laughs> one game and then my dad took me off the field because when he also found out I was skipping out of play practice to be on the football team and then I joined cheerleading so I don't know what play was it wide receiver. Oh, oh no 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 no! no. I didn't play. Oh. play. I said what play? She said she said about that football life. <laughs> I mean, I haven't played or. <laughs> She's an I mean, I think Hands. I wanted to prove that I could do it more than actually care about the sport at all. I wanted to prove something. Welcome to another episode of the United Men's Project. My name is Joseph James. This is Caleb Roberts. And this is Julian Owens. All right, so uh, I'm going to just shut up and I'm going to let uh, Julian, I'm going to let you take the lead on this. Absolutely. I am very excited to introduce our guest for this episode, uh, Sophia Tocola out of Seattle, Washington. She is an abolitionist and community organizer. Um, originally started working with and advocating for kids with special needs, and she's since done advocacy work for restorative justice for refugees and immigrants. And then you've also focused on women's rights and education, both here in the U.S. and in Ethiopia. And last year, uh, in 2020, your journey led you to being in the forefront of the movement that is turning out to have a lasting effect on the city of Seattle um, and probably the least impressive thing on your resume, uh, you are my, my girlfriend, the love of my life. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks for making it awkward, y'all. Thanks, uh, <laughs> thanks for, thanks for coming do. on the show, Sophia. Appreciate you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, wouldn't say you're the least thing on my resume. Might not put you on my resume, but that's fair. Wouldn't say Facts. you're the least. Facts. Mm-hmm. That's that's very fair. Definitely. Um so yeah, let's just let's just get into it, y'all. Um you know, in conversations that Sophia and I have had, uh she has told me a lot about how her life experiences have led to what she's done as an activist. Um so I'm hoping could you just tell us more about how your story led you to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. Um, so a little bit about me. I grew up 45 minutes south of Seattle, which was this very rural town. Um, technically, I was born in Seattle, but from second grade on, I grew up in this small town called Maple Valley. Okay. Really freaking racist, really freaking redneck. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I was in fifth grade when I found out the Confederate flag isn't the American flag because I saw the Confederate flag more than the American flag. So wow, that was a big part of my story. Um, I mean, I remember being in middle school and getting called the N-word and being spit on. And I didn't really understand what all that was because those weren't the conversations happening in my house. My dad was a refugee out of Ethiopia. My mom 
black American, um, but she was, towards the end of her high school career, was raised by a super white family, and I think because of that, I don't want to speak for her, but I can only assume that that sort of had an imprint on her where she didn't say more about Mm. what injustices were happening, what things were happening, and sort of refrained herself from that conversation, mm-hmm. Conversation, especially now that I know that family quite well. I've realized their racism and their tendencies and their white savior complex of we saved one black baby, we're good for the rest of our lives type mm-hmm. of thing. But that was sort of my family dynamic um, when it came to my parents. However, my sister's were and are much different. One focuses heavily on healthcare, similar to my mom, as she worked for the nurses union in Washington State, um, was an ER and trauma nurse. And then my sister right above me, her name's Sara, and she was and still is a very big activist, um, now currently living in Arizona. And then I have a younger sister. But because of that dynamic, I think from middle school, I was quickly brought to union workers for nurses' rights as well mm-hmm. as learning about patients. And it was there where I started to learn a little bit more about the discrepancies in healthcare affecting, at that time, it was people of color. And then as I got older, I realized it was truly affecting Black women more than anyone, as well as Native American women. Mm-hmm. And so that became a big part of my framework as someone who has battled in the healthcare system since I was born. And I think as well, when I look back at my story, um, I have a disability when I was younger, I was severely hearing impaired. And as I got older, those problems were fixed and years and years of speech therapy, but I also had a learning disability called dyscalculia. And so very quickly, like almost not all, but a lot of black kids were thrown into special education classes And Mm -hmm. it was there where I met a bunch of people, but then I also, during lunch breaks in, like, third grade, I would see other kids with Down syndrome and autism and Asperger's and just all these different things um, they were dealing with. And I realized how the school was treating them differently. And that, I think, sort of started my framework. And even though my sister was focusing on Black lives, my other sister and my mom were focusing on healthcare. a lot of my work started with disabilities. And it was in middle school where I noticed my friends in elementary school, by the time we got to middle school, they were taken out of classes and they were on cleaning duty, where I remember going to the bathroom one period and I saw one of my friends Mackenzie at the time and she was cleaning up everything and she's super happy to do it um but I'm like wait a second why aren't they in class and I started making a big fuss about it and that was the first time I ever actually got a detention because I was speaking out of turn and I'm the only black kid um (laughs) Middle school, I got in trouble a lot, but <laughs> honestly, it's the only time in my whole entire schooling I got in trouble a lot, which I think quieted me in school a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was getting in trouble for speaking out. And then I was, I think, going into seventh grade, it was the end of sixth grade where I went to the school board and I'm talking to all the parents and I'm like 12 or 11 years old and being like, hey, 
not all these kids are in school and according to these laws, like kids have to be in school, but because they have disabilities, they're taking the jobs of custodians rather than getting a proper education. And once I went to the capital of Washington's called Olympia and we passed, um, oh, I should remember the number, but I think it was called Initiative 405. I just might want to check that. <laughs> but b- basically, it was making sure that regardless of race, religion, disability, every child will have access to equal opportunities. And it became this big thing of every single kid in that school district was no longer allowed to pick up trash. And I think that was definitely the starting point of my activism work. And then as I got older, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, I started focusing on refugees and immigrants and healthcare, and then by the time I reached college, I was focusing on the betterment of Black lives. That's sure. a little synopsis of what started <laughs> my work as an abolitionist. Dope, for, for sure. And like Sophia, like what? First of all, everything you just said was really dope, and I really want to go into everything, but I'm going to try to focus in on like uh, a couple of things you said. Um, first, what strikes me from your story is resiliency, like. You started talking about Seattle and the the picture that you painted about your upbringing and the people is not how I envision like the area in which you grew up. Like just my yeah, Seattle's really fucked up. <laughs> and I'm like, and no. like outside of this, uh, Seattle is such. And I mean, Julian and I have had so many conversations. It's yeah. like this fake ass woke wanna be woke wanna be liberal place where it's like oh we put a little blanket statement we love black people but like actually black people used to live in this house and we kicked them out through gentrification but we love them hey, that's what seattle is yeah, and then yeah, you go 45 yeah. minutes south and everyone's racist yeah and i think you know caleb we probably have similar thoughts uh you know <laughs> about uh you know a, a certain area that we went to school um <laughs> Aspects of it, aspects Definitely. of it. And so I think about being from South Carolina where things are a little bit more overt. Um, you can clearly see how race plays into a lot of things mm-hmm. um, because it's really at the infrastructure level. Uh, and so I'm curious, you know, how did you move into this space of uh, social activism with regards to race? Uh, coming from somewhere like Seattle, where maybe traditionally it's not an area that people would associate with uh, racism in mm-hmm. the same ways that someone might associate with somewhere in the Southeast. Yeah. So I think similarly in the way that sometimes you might have a Black police officer who almost wants to prove that they are down with the cause, down with the police force. Not all of officers, black officers, but you'll get the one who has something to prove. And Mm -hmm. so they Mm -hmm. almost demonize black people more. They do more arrest of black people. Mm -hmm. And in that similar way, this town I lived in, I think always wanted to prove something. So there is a kid, his name's Grady Leith. Don't care about saying his name because don't have much feelings towards him. Um, but he <laughs> wore a Confederate flag in school. And he was marching around being like, white power, black people go back to Africa. And I'm looking at him. And I was in this class called Future Farmers of America. Only black kid in that class. <laughs> and I'm looking at him. I'm like, Grady you know, like, families from Ethiopia, like, at least be specific, Um, even though that's only half my family. But 
Like, why are you even saying this? And it had all started because gay marriage had just been legalized. There's a kid walking around in a rainbow flag who's proud his family could get married. And so then Grady comes in his Confederate flag. Grady ends up getting expelled. However, he ends up then fighting it and getting suspended. And during that suspension, his uncle, an imperial wizard in Idaho, gets super mad, marches down to the school. Ku Klux Klan is now fighting the school. And I'm like sitting in my FFA class. Typical, it, typical childhood, right? right. Everybody, just everybody, another yeah, Wednesday. Yeah. Everybody was like, yeah. <laughs> just some white yeah, terrorists, and, you know, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and at that time, I was in a program called the Miss Outstanding Teen for Miss America. And in that program, it was very well known that you weren't allowed to speak out about causes. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted scholarship money. And I didn't know much about what truly was going on because I wasn't educated about it. Yeah. And there, I feel like when you don't get out of your bubble, it's really hard. <laughs> for sure, um, yeah. But yeah, so there's a bunch of news reporters at my school and being like, oh my goodness, there's a black person. Let's run up to them and interview them. And I'm in my mind, I'm like, don't really know what's going on. All I know is like Ku Klux Klan is bad. And I don't say anything. And I get home and I tell my older sister and she's like lividly pissed off because I, in my mind, I was like, hey, like, I need to get the scholarship money. Like, Mm. I think I was 16 at that time. And... She sat me down and had this, like, conversation of, no, like, this is so important that no matter what, you're standing up and you are educating yourself on why these things are wrong. And I think that was a breaking point. And then the more I started educating myself, I found out about the Black Panther Party. And in school, all I knew was, oh, they were bad. But then through education, I realized, no, they truly helped the community. They stood up for Black people. They continue to stand up for Black people. And one cool thing about Seattle was they had the very first chapter outside of Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. And it went on for a very long time. And they're still living members today. All right. And then I was just going to talk about also in Seattle, there was big busing um, from the south end of Seattle to the north end to Seattle, which ended up hurting education and hurting those areas because rather than putting money into the South End school districts, it was just like, we'll take some of the black kids because we have to do integration. And this was in the 1980s. And they're like, okay, we'll just put them in the North End. And I think through that, I was able to learn more and also learned of the things that were actually happening in Seattle because Seattle is a very not diverse place Mm -hmm. unless you're counting the white to Asian population. Cause like for white people, it's over, it's like around 487,000, like over that. And then for Asian people, it's 101,000 people. And then for black people, it's 53,000. It's like very big differences. Um, but yeah, I don't even know if that answered your question. No, I did because I think <laughs> even just in in looking at some some numbers before ahead of the show, um, I was struck by you know the Asian population seemed to be mm-hmm. uh, closer to the size of the black population in the South. Yeah, um, it was almost like they were inverted, um, mm-hmm. and I was curious about that power dynamic as as it relates to race. Um, yeah, and but, I think yeah with Seattle. 
I would say that you can tell when I got, I just moved to DC. When I moved to DC, I was shocked by (laughs) how little Asian people there were and how many black people there were. And when I came back to Seattle, I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. What the heck? West and East Coast are crazy different. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wait, there's no black people here. (laughs) So you talked about the situation with the KKK coming to your school and that's, that, that is crazy. Um, but it, I really wanted to ask you about like, it, you seem like from an early age that you have an understanding of what was right and wrong and what you want to stand up for. And where do you believe that came from? Is that something that your family did that you can attribute to how they raised you? Is that something that you learned? Where do you think that spirit comes from? Because I think that's a a, a spirit that we need more of and you don't see a lot in today's world. Do you want me to be like completely honest? A hundred percent. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly, truly believe God. Mm-hmm. Like I, my family definitely has very different roles in activism from environment, healthcare, black folks. And I think since a young age, I just, I knew what was right and what was wrong. There's definitely times where I did the wrong thing, but there's definitely times where I could see someone hurting and I would get upset and wanted to make a difference for it. Like, I remember we would always come into Seattle from our small town in Maple Valley um, at least once a month to go to the zoo. I know zoo's bad now, (laughs) but I... My dad would tell me about, like, how many times when I was younger, I would just start crying whenever I saw a houseless person. My tears did not do anything. I was five. But (laughs) I think it was sort of something that I just always knew, that there are hurting people in the world, and there are people who it's not just about, oh, let me help you. Let me be your savior, because white savior complex is real. Um, Even if you are black, like, there is that saving but it was more of like hey how can i come alongside people and truly love on them and truly show them the heart that i believe i was given because of the lord mm-hmm. so sophia with your with your organizing um like i always ask organizers this because organizing i think is a world that few people understand i think a lot of people think they're organizers and you know, use the word loosely. <laughs> like, it, oh, yeah. it's like one of the most overused words in like activism. Like, oh, I'm an organizer. It's like, now there's, there's rules that come with this. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I'm curious about how you really, um, like, how do you use that term? What does that term mean for you? And what is the, the effect that you're trying to have on your community when you step in as an organizer? Yeah, that's a great question. I think. With everything that has happened in 2020, way too many damn people were like, okay, I'm black. I can lead. Mm-hmm. But th- like, that's, that's not just it. Like, there's so much education that needs to happen. And I talked a little bit about on this, but because I grew up in a bubble, mm-hmm. once I needed to leave that bubble, I needed to pop that bubble, and I needed to make sure I was educating myself. To be an organizer, you need to actually be educated on what is happening and dive deeper in. Mm -hmm. And also on top of that, you need to talk to the people who came before you because those are giant shoulders who are now trying to step and 
stand on. Mm -hmm. And so I think number one thing with organizing, you need to educate, 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 educate. And I would say by far that is the biggest thing. Uh, Like just point blank. You need to be educated and that education can't just be like, well, I'm going to Google, like, why do Black Lives Matter? Was Rosa Parks really tired? Like, who is Fannie Lou Hamer? (laughs) It needs to go so much more than that. And actually also maybe even taking classes and things like that. And so I think that was something that I started doing, which ended up becoming what I focused in on college and what I'm still focusing in as I go into more college and even more than that organizing it also talks about understanding like what are your gifts and what are your talents and how are you going to use them because Mm -hmm. not everybody is going to be the person to speak not everyone's going to be the person to write but there are so many other ways to organize might be just calling people up and asking for donations because community event planning whatever is struggling and we need help for them and different things like that Yeah. So you said, you know, that it's important to think about where people find their position, essentially, to enter um, these conversations and maybe uh, create their and how they lend their talents to a movement. Right. Mm -hmm. And so keeping that in mind, um, I think a lot of times we see marches, we'll see protests and we see people out in the streets and we interpret that as the correct and active steps to be taking. Um, but something I'm really interested in is, is kind of this idea of where do people who may not have that skill set or just, you know, that may not be their personality, how, how are you welcoming them into this space and facilitating spaces for them to, to, be, about, to be a part of the conversation, essentially? Yeah, that's such a wonderful question. So I think one thing this summer has showed is there are people who want to help. They might not even have the education, but they know that there is an injustice being done and they want to do a service. And we saw that again and again, not everyone was able to protest because some were elders, some were immune compromised. Like, hello, there was a freaking pandemic. There still is a pandemic. Um, So we would sit down with people. We would call with them and be like, what do you like to do? Some people said, oh, I just really love kids. Like, like, perfect. There are activists or abolitionists with children. They need someone to watch their kids when they're doing a protest. Or even there are people who need to make their court appointment. But one of the hardest things, especially for single parents, is having someone watch their kids while they go to court. And that has become such a big barrier. So we had people just simply watch kids. And that helped so much because some of the protests got violent. I mean... I know way too many people who have died this summer. We talked to, I had a friend who she has sickle cell and couldn't come out to a protest, couldn't be around people, still hasn't been around people all of COVID, Mm -hmm. but she's a really good artist. And so she would make art and would do sketches and you'd post them around the city. Or if we had a presentation to give, at a community event or at a town hall, it would be her art that would be up. Say there was someone who was good at making music. Maybe their music would be performed at a protest or someone who's really good at numbers helping with the finances. Like there is literally a thing for every single person. You could name something and I could show you where that could fit in. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. 
So there's a word that you mentioned in there, abolitionist. And that's a word that you 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 have given yourself that title. Uh, you're not just I've an organizer. Given that title. You have been given oh, that title. Correct. Excuse me. I don't me. think you should ever. Take <laughs> wait a, a title. minute. Wait a minute. You're right. <laughs> that's important, though. That's important. That's actually what I want to ask about because, to be completely honest, throughout these past couple of years, there have been quite a few people that just kind of give themselves the title abolitionist, mm-hmm. and then if organizer, you ask them, it, mm-hmm. and if you ask them. What do you want to abolish? What are your goals? What are the criteria? <laughs> they don't really have a great explanation. So I, so it kind of it's kind of confusing. What does that title even mean? So could you actually, you know, tell us what that title means not just to you but even to the people that have 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 given you that title? Mhm. Absolutely. So we're literally breaking down the word abolitionist. There's an abolish Mm -hmm. and for me there's abolishment of the status quo of white supremacy running this country into the ground we got air horns we need air horns for that (laughs) um so i would say that would be one of the big frameworks but if we're gonna break it down one of the big things that a lot of my focus has been on is the school to prison pipeline and how mm-hmm. are we going to abolish that as well as abolishing private prisons, which, ooh, big win for Seattle. We actually got that signed um, just a couple weeks ago. So amazing. Like More air horns. Right. <laughs> that has been like, coming. okay, ICU getting shut down, all the private prisons that horrible judges get money to like or get money from. Yeah, so abolishing that, I would love and I plan to help be a part of the team that abolishes prisons like some other countries have done, because I do truly believe it is possible. And I know next comment's going to be like, what about the murders? What about the serial killers? No, 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 no. As well as another focal point of abolishing is our healthcare system fucks black women. It messes with them. Like, black women should not be dying from giving birth, which women have done in the wilderness, mm-hmm. more than anybody else. Right. That, like, just should not happen. Our body parts aren't different than another woman. Or a something that affects one in ten women is something called endometriosis. And it, without discovering if a woman has endometriosis, she will get scarring in our fallopian tubes which lead to miscarriages, which can lead to a woman dying, which can lead to the baby dying, like all horrible things. Mm -hmm. However, a woman, a black woman who's no more likely to get it than a white woman might not find it, find out that she has endometriosis till her later 40s, while white women are finding out in their 20s. Which means less black kids. Which means less black population. And this affects one in 10 women, which is a huge deal like it's a lot of women suffer from this and so things like that need to be abolished all right so i'm not gonna ask the question about you know i'm not gonna want about you right now with regards to what we do with crime with you know uh the abolition of prisons but a term that i think is in the same vein is the the word defund uh, mm-hmm. And also, you know, sometimes the word is abolish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so last week we actually were focused on White cancel culture. And <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm going to follow up with that. Yeah. Um, and so 
last week we talked about like the intentionality around cancel culture and like understanding what words you're using to describe something yeah. um, and being very intentional, whether it be about cancel culture or calling someone out or just any type of responsibility. Um, so I'm curious around the words abolitionist and defund everyone, like Caleb was saying, everyone's calling themselves an abolitionist, but you just gave us, you know, maybe five or six different things that that word means from your perspective. And so, so not to conflate, your perspective with other people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. How do we kind of create a level of intentionality around around words like abolish or defund, um, so that people can actually strategically organize around them while still maintaining, I guess, the impact that they have as as buzzwords in you know in pop culture. I think buzzwords piss people off, but for good reason, and it starts the conversation going. Mm. divesting defunding divesting might actually help people understand more but it's not going to have as many conversations as defunding would mm. and mm -hmm. i think like how many times have you talked to someone of like well what the hell does defunding mean you want to take away police well, i do but not everybody does <laughs> but those conversations start when it's divesting it's like okay we're gonna like help divest like people obviously we have white angry supremacists out there they're still not gonna like those words but it's not going to make as much of an impact yeah and i would just say like there are even black people who i know who have been tentative because they didn't understand they're oh, like i need police in my neighborhoods mm -hmm. and so like a you know someone who's younger who may not be in the movement um, at, at like, you know, in our age demographic, someone in their forties, fifties, sixties who said, no, I still see a place for this. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they come into interaction with those words. Um, I think it's valuable to do what you just said and, and actually say that it's, it's really about, um, you know, getting a conversation started. Yeah. And I think, obviously I keep saying white people, like white people are the only ones against it. And I think we should all be well aware that, there's black people who voted for Trump. There are black people who vote blue or are for backing the blue correction. Mm -hmm. Like just a couple of weeks ago in my own home, I had a black man get mad at me because I'm not really for the police. And he's like, but black police rock and blah -de -da, -de da I'm like, well, uh, I've seen my friends get beaten up by black police and I mean, Seattle had a black police chief who said that, oh, we're not going to tear gas people because tear gassing actually leads to infertility, messes up with a woman's menstrual cycle, and actually can cause death with people in asthma and mess up babies' breathing patterns. But within eight days of the ban that with the UN and the Geneva Convention banned it from war, she's like, actually, um, pepper spray the protesters like can get down with pepper spray we're gonna go back to tear gassing people like to act like every Yo. single black person is on our side is yeah just being blind i mean how many people did kamala harris convict Oof. talk about it whoops <laughs> <laughs> that's totally accurate uh and I think, and, that, and that's what I'm saying, like the intentionality of language um, you're saying has like the intention of essentially promoting a conversation, which 
I think is something that uh, not everyone understands. Um, and we've seen, you know, in a lot of different uh, avenues and in different arenas where there's essentially a shock value to get mm-hmm. people to actually engage in conversations. And that's something that uh, I'm glad you highlighted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also side note, no one likes a boring commercial. Like if a commercial is just like soapbox material, no one's really going to pay attention to it. Right. And also if people are stuck up on a word, then they're really missing the point and truly need like a book slammed to their head and a little edumacation. Mm. Emotional capitalism. So I, I want to get, because I want to get back into like divesting and like the things with that. But first, I think you said something before about like uh, being an abolitionist and like what was happening in the marches this summer. And like, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit because I've been critical of marches <laughs> in other episodes. And I yes, have you, you should. And that that's a great I'm glad that you said that it makes me feel safe that I can say this opinion. But uh, <laughs> uh, one of the things that I, I I don't know if everybody was as in tune with that goal and if this was a genuine push for these radical changes. And I can have my opinion, but I was not there. You as someone being there, do you do you think there was uh, a more genuine nature to this approach? Or do you think there was people jumping on a wave because they had nothing else to do and it seemed like a, a good idea? Like, what is your takeaways from your time? I think it's both. I think if Mm -hmm. the protests, for example, in Seattle, you had protests were literally happening every single day for hundreds, plural, of days. Right. That would have not happened, one, if there wasn't a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Number Mm -hmm. two, if the videos of Ahmed Aubrey, which people fail to talk about, Mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, the list goes on, Sean Fuhrer in Seattle... If those videos did not blow up, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been talked about. Um, and that wave wouldn't have started. And if people weren't working from home, if so many people hadn't been laid off, I do not believe that what has happened, especially in Seattle and Portland, wouldn't have been able to happen. Mm-hmm. Like no one was working and it was during the summertime. Seattle is shitty during the winter. Like, people wouldn't have been out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was a wave. Um, But I think also more than that, people got fed up. People Mm -hmm. were done with Trump. They were done with all the bans. And so I think that added to it. And I think there were people who, unfortunately, thought they were like, okay, I finally get it. And that was, I would say, with Ahmed Aubrey. And then Breonna Taylor and George Floyd happened almost like a couple weeks later. It right. felt like even though people failed to acknowledge Ahmed Aubrey was happening in February, but yeah. we didn't talk about it till the summertime. And so I think those things were like, okay, people started feeling it. But then we come a year later and the things in our work, like sitting down with our employees and having these radical conversations like they didn't do anything now they're switching and talking about asian people when black people still haven't gotten their justice and if black people who in this country's totem pole first got talked about then everybody else would have been talked about but we don't want to talk about that because that's too radical for everyone don't tiptoe it yeah (laughs) but yeah so i would i would say the protesting yes there was a wave but there is also people who finally something clicked for them 
Hmm. I think there were conversations that truly clicked. There were readings that truly clicked. And But on the flip side, it's sort of hard because I would say there were more people that were there for the wave than who it truly clicked for them. But I would be dumbfounded to think that it didn't click for everyone. Or it didn't, for everyone who came, I still think there was a good percentage of people who were like, okay, this matters. I mean, some of the conversations I had, people were like, oh, wait, like, oh, shit. I get it. I'm like, you don't truly get it now in just like one month, but you will. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. So I'm being the terms person on this, (laughs) on this uh, episode, but what the term you were just using was the word radical. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are afraid of that word, which drives me crazy because I think they associate it with the radicalization of some fringe group or something like that. Um, and, and it's the words that go along with it that uh, give it kind of a bad light. And to me, you know, the word radical is really just about the, the, the overhauling change of something. And, you know, I see a system um, that's consistently produced outcomes that are negative or inequitable for black Americans. And so what I'm wondering is, how do you get more people to kind of ride that wave and understanding that? If we have a system that's consistently failing people, we actually do need some forms of radical change, um, you know, in order to offset those things. Yeah, I would say. Hmm. First, once again, if words are what people are stopping at, lives are being lost in the process. Like what? If let they're me, stopping let, at the word I know, radical. I know, I know. Mm-hmm. No, no, but what I'm saying is, is like, they don't actually, the word radical is actually a very pure word, mm-hmm. right? Like, by the definition, the context of it. What I'm saying is, is these other terms that are going along with it, it's, it's, get, it's going along a certain message. And so what I'm saying is, is how do you get people to understand that actually radicalization is a good thing? Not so much to... Like I, I would I would separate it from the term um, uh, defund where there's kind of a loose ambiguity with it. Radical is mm-hmm. like actually very spot on to say you want to overhaul a system that isn't producing equitable outcomes. Isn't it makes sense to have radical yeah. change in that case. And so what I'm saying is, is how do you get people um, to understand that radical is a beautiful term and it's a necessary term in these conversations? Yeah, I would say education. I think one Something that I unfortunately saw was so many people just yelling at people from the street corners mm-hmm. of being like, get down with this, blah, da, 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 da. But sure, they might give you some money. But like one, where is that going? Um, but what's truly going to happen is explaining things and having those sit down conversations. And so I think when we're explaining this radical movement, having those sit down conversations with people, taking time to educate people, which also sucks because it's like black people, we've been educating since all of us were born and way before our grandparents were born. Like we've been having these conversations. But I also think opening that door is important, but also reminding white folks, Asian folks, Latinx folks, whatever folks, you also need to educate yourself. So I would say it all starts with education because we can't go anywhere from there. 
or we can go anywhere from their education. One of the points you said, Sophia, a while ago really stuck with me and I want to expound on it because you really talked about how the effect of this movement a year later and people are changing the conversation. And I want to dive deeper mm-hmm. into that because it really gets into ownership of the discussion. And this has been my problem as looking at how the whole movement played out. Organizers like yourself produce billions of dollars in uh, people giving money conversation for months. And yet a year later, you know, you can see that, you know, the same ownership about the same issues, like people get to now use what you all did in the summertime to say, oh, this is our initiative. We're working on some other issues. We're doing this. We're doing good work. See, and what I want to ask you is, First, did you feel like you had ownership or do you still feel like you have ownership of the issues that you worked on? And and second, like, how do you feel about how those resources were handled? Like how the resources that you helped build um, are currently being used now? Yeah, I thank you for that question. I think resources are huge, first off, and I wholeheartedly This is going to get me in so much trouble, but I don't really care. (laughs) I think I trusted way too many people um, because in my mind, I'm like, okay, we are here for this cause. We are here for the betterment of black people. Like we are here for, there was a youth jail that had just been built um, that was over $65 million and it originally said that it was going to be a big community center and family and justice center, but it, it was jail. Mm-hmm. And so wanting like the no new youth jail and actually turn it into something for the community and something beautiful. So we're there for that. Um, so many protesters got arrested and we were like, no, we also need to free all the protesters because in the constitution, protesting is allowed. Um, and then because of all the lies the mayor had been saying, um, there was a big push and also the mayor re- resigning. Mm-hmm. But at the basis of all of this, it was betterment for black people, which is defunding the Seattle Police Department and investing it into the black community. Mm-hmm. However, when it came to finances, I would say because of my learning disability with dyscalculia, I personally was like, I don't, someone else can do that. I know what I'm good at and money is not that. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not good with numbers. I'll mess it up. Like, I don't want any, anything to do with it. And Mm -hmm. because of that, I didn't watch what was happening to the money. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know everything that was happening with it. And I think when people came to ask questions, it was something of, I knew, like, okay, so I think it was 8,000 was used to, like, a back-to-school event of making sure every kid in the neighborhood got new computers with COVID, and I knew the money went there, and then I knew, like, 10,000, um, we had a big winter storm, was, and I think it was more than 10,000, once again, not good with numbers, <laughs> was used for helping people who just got swept by a homeless encampment and putting them in housing. And then from the hotel 
once I didn't take them anymore, helping them get into tiny homes and things like that. So I, I knew these things were going on, but I think one of my biggest failures wasn't checking in the money, even though I, I don't want to say I couldn't, mm-hmm. um, but I would say I could have done a better job of looking at those resources and where that things were going. And I think that impacted um, my organizing because when I left my big organization that I was a part of, there were people calling me asking questions and I was like, I never had access to it. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I can't tell you what happened to those resources. And I think that really was a big failure on my part. And I really just want to say this point because and first, thank you for sharing that, because I know this is pretty recent still. And like there's a lot of stuff. That's your time. That's your effort. Like a lot of that stuff can be emotional. Um, But this is why I asked you that question initially, like what does organizing mean to you and what is that word? Because one of my biggest pet peeves is you have people who give self titles to themselves and like i'm just speak to the community the black community loves to do this like everybody's a bishop like who gave you who told you you was a bishop all of a sudden you a bishop um but like there's some good to it but also like we have to talk about what comes with a name yeah right absolutely yeah it's yeah and i think that was sorry for cutting you off a hard thing of this summer was Again, it was that trust factor of like, okay, we're all here for the same cause, right? And it wasn't until later on, I'm like, oh shit, we aren't. Like, some of y'all just jumped on this. Like, I remember having conversations with one person and I was watching the Republican convention and they were like, how the hell are you watching this? Like, are you an op? And I was like, well, first off, like, I don't think... Like, Democrats or Republicans are helping Black folks, first off. And two, like, I want to know what everyone's thinking so I know exactly what I'm going up against. Like, duh. And I was just like, oh my goodness. These people have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Right. Or when (laughs) I would talk about abolitionists who came before us or talking with abolitionists who were alive during the civil rights era in Seattle and the making of the central district, which is a black community or was the black community in Seattle before gentrification. There's so many conversations of like, oh, they're old. What are, what do they know? I was like, oh, what the fuck? Like, do you not respect your elders? Like, do you not realize that the fact that you are able to have this conversation is because they laid the framework? And so that was, I think, a big thing of people would wake up and be like, well, this is injustice and my skin color has got some melanin. And so I'm going to the streets and I'm leading the conversation, (laughs) but they weren't taking time to actually sit back and educate themselves and get that information. And because of that resources were lost in the process. And, and you're talking about reaching back to, you know, people who have been in the communities for a long time. Um, and who have an understanding of the framework. Um, And I think that's super important, and I think it's something that gets overlooked way too much. Um, But something that's also really difficult to do is kind of facilitate ways um, for them to move into the present, because I think uh, these things can be really fluid, um, and not that they're unaware of what's going on, but how do you parlay that information that they might have to a bunch of kids that only want to be on TikTok and Instagram for... Mm you know, hours at a time and they dance um, off. and yeah, you know, in, in really effective ways. Right. Um, and, you know, like, obviously we started this, this podcast with, 
you know, the hopes of being able to reach more people who may not have the time to, you know, just open up a book or just don't know where to start even. Um, but, you know, what are some ways that you've found to kind of bring those two parties together um, and unite them, um, but also give them direction and, and some intentionality behind what they're doing? Yeah. So for me, it started with where I worked. And so back in Seattle, I ran a community center that focused in affordable housing. And it was an apartment complex for affordable housing for kids who were displaced by gentrification, refugee status, immigration status. And it was mostly a black organization, though we did have two white kids and one Asian kid for a little while. But the majority were black. And it started with educating them on history, both back in Africa and here, and also the part of here that didn't just start with slavery. And so having those conversations, as well as having conversations about Moors and Queen Sheba and like Tutu and just so many of these conversations to empower them. And so when people, they would come home crying from school, there's this one girl, I can't say their name because they're underage, but they came home crying, run into my office, and they were like, Miss Sophia, Miss Sophia, like, they're calling me ugly, like, I want to be white, like, my hair is big, like, blah da 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 and I bring them into the mirror, and I'm like, what do you see? And like, me and you? I'm like, no, 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 what do you see? Like, look at me, like, who do you see? And he's like, well, you, I'm like, what do I look like? And she's like, oh, well, you look pretty. And I'm like, what do you see when you look at you? And like, well, I got a big forehead and my eyes are too big and my skin is too dark. And I'm like, look, we're the same shade. We both got five heads. <laughs> like, <laughs> we both got big eyes. Like, there is so much power in that. Like, I wouldn't want to... Mm -hmm. Three head, like that's a tiny little brain <laughs> space. Like <laughs> you need five heads and so for, I think, <laughs> for more brain power. Okay. More brain power. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like I could, I don't know, <laughs> knock somebody with this thing. <laughs> Jimmy Neutron said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it first started with like the kids of like empowering them and also educating them, so they were able. When I was like, hey. I got a protest for our kids who are incarcerated right now. And they knew exactly what I was talking about. And they were like, oh, I'm down. And this was, I would say, even before the big everybody protesting for everything. And it was because the organization that I led, the kids knew who they were. They knew right. where they came from. They knew whose they were. And they knew the power they had in them. And so because of that, they were ready for the next thing. So when I said, oh, there's a protest going on, they were there. When I was talking about, I started, I mean, it got canceled because of COVID and now that I live in DC, but a program of reversing the status quo of black kids can't swim. And so it was a program I started in Rainier Beach, which is a predominantly black neighborhood, predominantly super poor in Seattle. And it was helping high school kids know how to swim. And then it went into middle school and part of that program wasn't just swimming, but it was also letting each other know of like, hey, like these people might say these things about you, but this is who you actually are. And because of those strengths and because of those building, when it came time to be like, okay, there is work to be done in our community, they were like, oh yeah, I'm there. Because their mind was somewhere else. And I think it starts with changing what's in their mind. Because if they're only being fueled by what's on social media, what the internet's telling about them, what TV shows are going to tell about them, it's going to be the same as white people have all the power. 
the richest black people are only on TV and everybody wants a Tesla. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but it's not going to be about the truths within themselves. And so for me, it started with the younger kids. But yeah. Now, because I was just going to say, just so Sophia knows, I used to organize in Milwaukee. That's where I'm from. And uh, interfaith. So I used to do like a bunch of denominations, like from Jewish to Muslim to Christian. And so I got like a like all these religious people around and like some of them were legit. But then you just get people with like two person congregations trying to be a part of the conversation. And it's like, yo, you and your two cousins cannot speak like you don't have any weight behind you. Like, first of all, how did you get this position and why do you think we should respect you? And like, I think that's like organizers too. Like you can't just come up out of nowhere and just be like, Oh, I do this. Like now this, this is a skill set. Yeah. You know, it's so true. Like I, something that I'm really passionate about is school to prison pipeline. And through that, I basically, my background in like education is, theology and african-american studies and putting that together i've done a lot of like assistant chaplain roles and i was on a call last week and it was like hey sophia you've done the amount of hours of speaking to get your chaplaincy and i'm like wait a second i haven't actually gone to school for that i'm like well in king county all you need to do is two hours of this class and you like been in those testing rooms and blah da 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 and I'm like, but it doesn't make someone like a chaplain like two hours and then right. I've done like I don't even know how many hours of speaking gigs at the detention center, but it was just like what that, that, that's all yeah. like that's it no it's it's crazy go save people life you got it like <laughs> <laughs> so. I have a question for you that I feel may be kind of hard for someone in your position as an organizer and as an abolitionist. Um, last year, specifically, you were fighting, you mentioned it earlier, to one of your demands was to, to, to divest from the police and invest in the black community. And y'all had specific numbers that you were looking for when it came to that. And then on top of that, um, you were fighting against uh, private prisons and youth jails, and you did end up getting the youth jail taken away. Um, and in what is it, twenty twenty five? By the twenty twenty, by the time twenty twenty five comes, there will be no more private prisons. But then you've also mentioned in, in Seattle. Let me clarify, in Seattle, mm-hmm. you've also mentioned that that comes with its own challenges because what what is actually happening with the justice system now in Seattle what's the what what is the alternative so my question is what is a win for you exactly like when you asked to defund the police you asked for a specific percentage and they gave you something significantly lower is that still a win and when you talk about the private prisons you know yes they're taking that away However, are they actually implementing new systems to to really address mm-hmm. the issues that that the private prisons were 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 creating? So, yeah. if you could talk about that. No, that is an amazing question. Thank you. Um so <laughs> So, uh <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, the Seattle Police Department was defunded by $76 million for their 2021 budget, which is this year. 
um, which also included the $56 million, the department's budget of the department's budget. Um, and do you know how movie- big the overall budget is? Yes. That's $400 million. All right. Awesome. Yes. 400. What? Right. Million. Also, in Seattle, get this, not only are police paid more than a lot of doctors, political workers, like police is one of, in Seattle, one of the best paying jobs. And if you join, depending on your ranking of where you join at because of how much schooling you had, you can get a bonus up to $100,000 just for signing. And that's your first day in the academy. Mm-hmm. That's not even your bonus after being out of the academy, which, mind you, is only six weeks. Six weeks. We say that two hours in a chaplain's bad, six weeks and you get a gun and you are licensed to kill people in Seattle. Mm. So, yeah. Which, when we get that, okay, we got $76 million, yay. And then on top of that, there was like a $20 million budget cut because they didn't hire as many people. Like, woohoo. I don't want to say that's not a win, but I like don't want to say that is a win. I would say that's a stepping stone, and we have so much more to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, with all the protesting, there were 200 police officers who quit their jobs because they were fed up with protesters. They were didn't like the new policies and procedures and the fact they were under the like global eye because Seattle and then Portland were they were causing the most havoc and everyone was watching. And so 200 police were like, I'm done, but they only moved to small towns like the town I grew up in or the next city over. It wasn't like, oh, I'm done with the badges. Like, no, I want to be racist and kill black people somewhere else and not get caught. That's more like how that happened. And then on top of that, there were 70 officers who were laid off. But get this, they talk about 70 officers laid off but a lot of those officers who laid off were canines and horses. Wait, they weren't Dang. people that were working with the canines and horses. They were they were canines and horses. Yeah, there were a few people who got laid off, but the majority were animals. Curious. Because they are technically officers. What is a dog's salary in the police force? Is that a thing? No. Some good old premium kibble. Oh, okay. I was just curious. <laughs> but why they gotta lay off the some pu- pristine water? Yeah, like why they gotta lay off the puppies and the horses though? Like, right? Yeah, why are you why are you laying off Airbus? Yeah. Like, no, um, I side note, I really love horses, and so <laughs> I would love to get one for cheap. Um, but when I was looking at prices of horses, I noticed so many were coming out of the Seattle Police Department because they were now laid off. So mind you, they are selling these horses for thousands and thousands of dollars and getting that money right back. Right. Yeah. So Those I think like, they're uh, buying. I thought they just sold chargers. That's yeah. <laughs> 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 but yeah, but I would say a win to actually answer your question um, would be kids being happy in their skin. Like mm. I talked to so many kids throughout this who were like, especially in the area I lived in and worked in, which was predominantly all black people, where these kids would be like, oh, people are fighting for me. I didn't want to tell them, like, not everybody is. But 
it were so many kids who were like, okay, wait, what is this about? Because when I was my, when I was their age and Black Lives Matter was starting and I think I was in junior high or high school, I was afraid to tell people, like being completely candid, that my sister was a big activist in Seattle because so many people I was friends with and they were white and like my quote unquote best friends at the time were like, oh my goodness, Black Lives Matter is ruining Christmas and they're scaring everybody in downtown <laughs> Seattle. And I'm like, Loki, my sister is forcing me to go to these protests and I have a hoodie on and like didn't want anybody to see me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, looking back, now these kids don't have to actually go through that experience because they are proud to be black. Yeah. And that is the biggest win you will ever get of a child being like, oh, I love my curls. Like, oh, I love my afro. Oh, I love my skin. Oh, I can be whatever I want to be. Like, that by far will be the biggest win because at the end of this day, I can organize, I can protest, I can do abolitionist work, activism, you name it. But realistically, just like we close private prisons, but it's not going to play effect for another five years, a lot of our work is for the future generations. And if I can make those future generations better, Mm -hmm. then I'm happy. Because my work is so my kids and my future's kids' kids don't have to go through half the things that we went through. Mm -hmm. Similarly, like MLK, he had a dream for his children because... Reality, not everything's going to change in our lifetime, but hopefully we can change it so the next lifetime is so much better. Mm -hmm. You're beautiful. I mean, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. Yo, get a room. This is real love on the pod. Like, I hope y'all know we're not cutting this. Um, How do you provide yourself the space and the grace if? what you see as a strategy today doesn't necessarily work. Yeah. And I say that because there have been times in the past where, you know, at one point we were like, and I'm talking black people too. We're like, Oh, we need to fund police more and we need to do this, that and the other to, to address our neighborhoods and we need to take care. And like, that Mm -hmm. was us. So like, I'm not going to put that on anybody else. Um, But it was out of a sincere place. But at the same time, we can also say like a lot of that was underdone, you know, like it, it, it wasn't done with the right passion, wasn't done uh, with the right people. And there were people there looking for a profit. Right. Um, and so I kind of want to ask about how do you provide yourself with the space to say, you know, I don't necessarily have all of the answers, but I know that these are places yeah. that we can start. So do y'all have a better way of asking that? So I don't sound crazy. I think I can actually answer this question. You don't have to redo it. I think I started activism on a win. I was early puberty and I made a change and I was like, okay, this is how everything's going to go from here on out. And it didn't. And the first time it was with protesting with my mom. I was probably, I was still in middle school doing nurses union rights, trying to get a higher salary and better working conditions because people like my mom would work for 16 hours at a time and didn't get any breaks. And then she'd come home and got sick and almost died by falling asleep at the wheel. Like hold ordeal and I was pissed and I remember just still like thinking that anger of like you have people who are trying to save your excuse me trying to save your lives and like you're just not gonna give a shit about them like I remember being so upset and I remember 
actually having people around me that almost took the burden off. And I think when it comes to those spaces, one, you need people. You need people to support you because there isn't always going to be a win. Mm -hmm. For example, this summer, there was so much trauma, trauma that I'm still impacting today. And I thought I had people. And like, obviously, I had Julian. We were in a long distance relationship, which Lord knows how I don't (laughs) survive this summer. Right. Um, (laughs) But we laugh, but like, seriously. Um, because of so much of the trauma that had happened, I was like, okay, so my people are going to be the people I experience this trauma with because they know this trauma. Like that, that's just going to happen. That's how it's going to work. They watch the people die. We got shot at, like we all had to wear our bulletproof vests. Like we almost got ran over by police. Like they experienced all this crazy shit with me. So these are going to be my people. But realistically, those people needed other people to lean on. We couldn't all lean on each other. We needed a better support system. And so I think that biggest space was me taking a step back after so many tears and crying and freaking out and one knowing or learning, not knowing. I had to learn this, that I needed to come to the Lord during those spaces, as well as come to people who cared about me, who were not going through trauma because they were able to actually invest time in me. Because, like, for example, when we are protesting and we're trying to get Seattle police defunded by 50% and we don't get 50%, we're supposed to get $200 million. We did not get that. Mm -hmm. We still have not gotten that. We don't know if we will ever get that, but we will still keep fighting. But during that time, I'm like, what the hell? People have died for this. I'm upset. Like, I close my eyes at night and I still see dead bodies. Like, I'm pissed. I'm hurt. And it is in those times where my space needs to be those close people in my life. And so I think that would be the biggest thing when it comes to organizing, when it comes to protesting. You need to have people because you cannot do this alone. I mean, even when MLK came to Selma... Rosa Parks came to, and there were other people. There were NAACP leaders. There were groups of people because no one can do this alone. This work is not supposed to be alone. It's supposed to be a group. And I think that's something beautiful about the United Amends Project. Like, y'all are doing this together. Mm-hmm. Like, this work, MLK was never alone. Malcolm X was never alone. Fannie Lou Hamer, even Harriet Tubman, like, talked constantly about the other people who helped her along the way how god helped her along the way like we need space for our people and also time to grieve and so my sister is one of my biggest heroes and i would come to her a lot and one thing she called me out on was like you're going through these crazy things of for short story time um on July, what is it? July fourth, uh, we had a police officer try to run us over. Like, did a little U-turn, tried to run us over again, and she was off duty. Had just came from work, hopped in her car, and she was trying to essentially kill her. When she got out of the car, I realized I knew her. Her name's Molly Clark, badge number five six six. Still remember it. Um, and I actually grew up with her. I went to her kids. 
um, birthday party. We were in grade school together, middle school together, and high school together. And if I graduated on time, we would have graduated together. And, like, I, I personally knew her. I knew her canine, who she was on the canine unit. And I remember calling my sister, and then some other more traumatic things happened later on that day. And I'm upset, and I'm like, what the hell? And she's like, Sophia, like, you need to take a step to, like, take time to breathe and take space for yourself. And that was also something Julian told me a lot was, like, you can't just go back out there every day. Like, you need to take breaks. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you aren't superwoman sorry but you're not (laughs) and so i think that was a big thing i hope all organizers are realizing this work is hard you are dealing with death you are dealing with pushback you are dealing with someone who thinks they're supreme and they are not like you need to take breaks so i think the biggest thing to answer your question in this version of space you need your people and you also need time to grieve You need time to grieve. And then as you go back, you need to be like, okay, this is everything that went bad. This is everything that went wrong. And this is where we're going to go from here. And so those three things in that space is going to help you move forward. So, and like when you're describing those events that happen and like the closeness you had with this person, you know. Oh, yeah. I don't think you can get a better look at real people than in organizing because there's real wins, there's real losses, there's real things at stake. Um, do you think that you've changed from your experience? And and are you afraid of how it's changed you? Like, do you feel like you can ever be normal? I don't think I ever was normal. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the sticks with a daughter of a refugee and a daughter of a foster care parent. Mm-hmm. Like, I started being a foster parent when I was 21 years old. Like, I, I was never supposed to be normal. I had three open heart surgeries before I could walk. Like, what is normal? Because I know I'm not it. Like, I was never meant to fit the status quo, and I've learned that I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I cried about it. There are times when I was in elementary school that I would bleach my skin and I even put yellow paint on my hair because I tried to be blonde. Sad moments of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I don't think I was meant to be normal. I don't want to be normal mm-hmm. because being normal in this country is being some white skinny little blonde girl and I don't really want to be that. <laughs> but I would say... The change has been, I need to deal with my PTSD of this protest, of activism this summer, of all the dead bodies, all the close calls. Like, I mean, Julian could tell you how many times I called him and like, I don't know if this is my last conversation because there were gunshots. There were people who were being stabbed. There's people who were run over and like, there was so much death and like seeing more dead bodies than I ever have. And they are humans. They are friends. They are family. Like these are people's lives. And so I think because of that, those traumas still haunt me where there are certain things that I will get super pissed off even. And so I also work with a Christian organization or just quit. Never mind. But one of my last conversations was this reconciliation with the Seattle police chief or assistant police chief or whatever. And I got pissed off at him for a lot of things. But one of the things, and 
I don't regret this, but he talked about his PTSD. And so I'm thinking he's talking about, like, super traumatic things. And he talks about how he went outside and he saw his kids writing in chalk with the black neighbor's kids. And he was like, I just had such a post-traumatic stress disorder moment. And I was like, wait a second. Your trauma is that when you put big cinder blocks and a metal gate with, like, the little wires spiral thing around the police department so no one could come into a building they helped pay for and you arrested and beat up protesters because they put chalk on it writing blm and hey black people matter don't you forget it that was your post-traumatic stress so those are things like that that will trigger me and i am pissed i'm still upset about that conversation and i called him out on it in front of a bunch of white people and got muted by my boss ex-boss um <laughs> because things like that where those things I would say I am more reactant for because I'm called bullshit. And I think there are certain things where I used to be quiet about. I can't. I can't. Right. And because lives are at stakes and because my personal friends have lost their lives for this, I'm not going to be quiet. I never will. So we really appreciate Sophia Tocola coming in to talk to us about some of the work she's been doing in Seattle, as well as some of her life experiences that led her into organizing and, you know, really coalition building around the betterment of society. Be sure to keep up with all the work that she's doing. Um, you can find her on Instagram and Twitter, and she's actually working with us um, on a collaborative post that'll be going up on our Instagram, which is at United Amends Project. Uh, we have a really awesome episode five in the works, so be sure to subscribe and leave us five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts, um, and also just share us with your friends and family. So we'll see you next week, and peace. <laughs>